So I want to know, Michael, from your perspective, why do you think that is a good idea to solve cash flow problems? Russ, yes, Harry, I'm, I, I think I get your question. I was, um, I missed some of that. It was coming in strange, but um, yeah, the, of course, the reality is there's, there is, that is not ideal. Um, I want to wish and hope that uh, most of the small businesses that are out there, and I, you know, we work with hundreds of them as an accounting firm. We, we handle their cash flow. We handle their um, payments. We handle their customer invoicing. There are a ton of, there are, you know, hundreds of other strategies before they uh, get to asking an employee or, or holding back payroll. Like just so just hear me out is this is not a primary strategy or a first strategy. It's a, it's a reality that I see small businesses hit when they try all other things and yet they still have a payroll due. So they may have a, a large customer payment coming up. Well, if they can get the customer to pay early, great. That's a great strategy. They may have, have a vendor ever, bill due. Go ahead. Have you ever had a business owner, instead of doing that, maybe sell an asset or do something else, get a personal line of credit, borrow money from other people? Like, I think just overall, that should never even be an option on the table is what I'm saying. Good morning, everybody, or good evening or afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Yeah, it's te technically an afternoon here in, in Wisconsin. It looks like we have Chris on, too. Um, it's afternoon for him as well. Nessie or Chris, I don't know if you have time here, but if you'd want to join as a speaker, I feel like you'd have some good Kevin insights to share. No problem. I'm more than delighted to add uh, Chris on up. And we've got Nunzio, who's also one of our panel today. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, early morning here and it's a bit miserable here in Sydney. I hope the weather is fabulous where you guys are in the world. Welcome, Chris, to the stage. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I think it's like 40 Fahrenheit here currently. That sounds cold to me. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I said a mistake. It's 51, but yeah, cold. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound very fun. It's been actually beautiful here until today, which is okay for a Monday morning. I don't mind if it's a bit miserable when we have to go to work. But, uh, all right. Well, I'm going to just, while we, I think we've got everyone up on stage, actually. You guys were super efficient. Normally, this takes a few minutes, but you guys were quick. Uh, so, I'll actually kick us off early. Well, on time, I suppose. First, I'm just going to say, hi, everybody. My name is Nessie, and I will be your host today. And just a reminder about who I'm hosting for, hosting for Cashflow Chronicles. They research and interview the minds behind successful businesses and then share those golden nuggets with our audience to fuel their entrepreneurial journey. Today, we are here to discuss the Entrepreneur's Guide to Business Acquisition, part two, because we had a part one discussion. Matthias, you were there. It was a solid discussion. We were on for a good kind of couple of hours and uh, we just didn't do it justice. So we're here doing it again. Part two. You excited? I am. Good to be back. <laughs> I listened it's, last week. It was great. 
Yeah, nice to have you up, Chris. So actually, maybe, Chris, uh, since you are new to the panel, um, do you want to give us a bit of background about yourself? Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I, uh, I run a CPA firm, um, virtual firm called Midwest CPA, and we, uh, we help acquisition entrepreneurs uh, with due diligence before they buy their business and then monthly accounting services uh, after, after they close on their acquisition. Perfect. Thank you. I'm going to introduce all the speakers and then we'll get into the nitty gritty difficult questions. But uh, Nunzio, do you want to um, introduce yourself to the panel? Yeah, for sure. Hey, everyone. Nunzio here, uh, founder and CEO of buyandsellabusiness.com. Um, obviously, by the name, we're an online platform where people can buy and sell businesses. We've been in the game for about 10 years now. We've done over $3.5 in transaction deals. Uh, and having a ton of fun. So, you know, what really wakes us, our entire team up in the morning is just uh, being on this journey to make business ownership real uh, for thousands of people uh, and people that just didn't know uh, that they could buy and grow a business versus start one. So uh, we're on this journey. We believe that a better economy and stronger uh, future starts and finishes with uh, people wanting to be business owners. So we're, we're pushing that narrative every single day. Uh, super happy to be here. Fantastic. We're delighted to have you too. And uh, Matthias, do you want to come and introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, for sure. Th thanks for hosting this again, Essie. Uh, so Matthias Smith based here in Wisconsin. What I do is I help acquisition entrepreneurs or, or buyers of small to medium-sized businesses with navigating through the SBA financing process. Basically by first and foremost, identifying if the, the structure that they have that they're planning to submit for their offer to purchase or letter of intent is one that will ultimately get financed by an SBA lender. And then basically kind of identifying which bank aligns most closely with their deal and guiding them through the process from start to finish, basically from getting the financing proposal all, all the way through closing. So, and just to kind of give Chris a shout out here, he's one of the best financial due diligence professionals here in the space so chris that's a big call man you're, you're too kind matthias but <laughs> yep i love that so we've got the best financial due diligence dude on this on this call is what you're telling me that's amazing what one one of them <laughs> uh, we have someone else who's just popped up on stage kevin you were with us last week do you want to Give us um, some background about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I'm a successful self-funded searcher, acquired a business um, in the beginning of this year um, after trying a couple times and, and failing. Um, I'm also a principal at Fruition Capital, which is a um, investment firm dedicated to uh, closing the equity gap for self-funded searchers. So um, if you have a deal under LOI um, and it's between $1 and $2 million in EBITDA, um, non-tech, B2B focused, 10 plus years in business. That's sort of our sweet spot. Uh, we write, you know, anywhere from five hundred to $800,000 checks into these companies. Fantastic. Thank you. All right, everyone, I have a few questions. And just a reminder, anyone from the uh, audience, if you have a question, please um, either come up on stage to ask it. We'd delighted to have you up or feel free to put it into the chat comments at the bottom. Throw your questions up. The harder, the better. Let's really grill this beautiful panel we have here. Let's uh, make it an interesting discussion. And I'm going to kick us off, going to get into the nitty gritty as the first question, which is 
Going into financing, since we've got some finance experts here, can you explain how deal structures typically vary with small business acquisitions? Matthias. Yeah, so I, yeah, so I, I can grab that one. Um, kind of speaking from the SBA side, generally what I see is a, a combination of bank of SBA financing, seller financing, and then also equity into the deal. So if you're a buyer kind of going the SBA route, essentially the, the specific kind of parameters that there are is one, you have to have what's called 10% equity for the deal. So what that means specifically is you take whatever the purchase price is for the business, and then you add in whatever the other kind of uses of funds items are. So permanent working capital, basically cash the balance sheet that gets financed into the SBA loan that gets dispersed to the business day of closing whatever the bank closing costs are, um, whatever your costs are for your buyer attorney fee and or your financial due diligence provider. So someone like Chris, um, then whatever the SBA guarantee fee is, which is basically the equivalent of, of PMI or private mortgage insurance or SBA loans. So basically all that together, you have to have 10% equity. So that can, the equity can come from a combination of one or more places. So the most vanilla kind of straightforward way to think about it would be having it all be cash. So basically, whatever that amount would be, just having cash have kind of comprised of the down payment. That's something that the more conservative subset of SBA lenders like to see. But there are also two different ways that you can come up with the equity too. So you can use what's called a partial standby seller's note, which is a seller's note that's only accruing interest or kind of building interest during the first two years post-closing. And then payments start in year three, and they go through the duration of whenever the SBA loan um, concludes. The other potential kind of avenue for coming up with the down payment funds is using what's called a full standby seller's note. And that's basically a seller's note that's only accruing interest while the SBA loan's outstanding. And then at the point in time you pay the SBA loan off, you can refinance that too. Typically, what I'm seeing as far as structures go is something, generally speaking, where the SBA lender bank is financing about 80% of the total uses of funds. Then you have a seller note with payments on it for somewhere around 10% of the total uses of funds. And normally I see that seller's note on an amortization schedule matching that of the SBA loan term, which is typically 10 years. And then you'll have a, a balloon payment, say around like year four or so, at which point, whatever the outstanding balance of the seller note is, all comes due. And then the the 10% equity, can, however the buyer and seller decide to splice and dice that. Um, most normally, I see about half of the 10% equity being cash, and then the other half of it coming from the, the partial standby seller's note, if, if that helps. Yes, it does. Chris, do you have anything to add on that? Um, Matthias, I actually had a, I had a question for that. Now with the new SBA guidelines of being able to roll equity, I've been starting to see that. Actually, I just had a client close on a deal with that recently. Have you been seeing an uptick in some of your clients going that route? Or is it um, has, has it been a new question you've been getting a lot with, with clients? Yeah, so I have some people that are looking at the equity rollover deals, but most of the time the people that are contemplating it it's due to like the, the business licensing kind of circumstances with like the trade site businesses. But most people, generally speaking, want to kind of take complete control 
of the business that they're buying if they can. So it hasn't been as popular as I I thought it would be, Kev, when it was announced as a new change. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Nunzi or Kevin, do you have anything you'd want to add to that? Not from my end. Uh, that's definitely their core competency, but I would everything Matthias said was uh, spot on from what I'm seeing just from you know uh, and uh, you know a platform perspective. There's definitely that mix of 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 equity with the seller note and um, and and uh, cash uh, to get these deals done. Um, and a lot more buyers are looking for those those seller notes, especially in Canada, uh, just for confidence in the deal as well. So uh, pretty aligned. So yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, I'm now going to ask then. So what? Um, when we're talking about valuing, then so we've got we've talked a little bit about financing, but from a valuing standpoint, what key factors? And I'll address this to you, Nunzio, since you were last talking. But what key factors do you consider when valuing a small business acquisition? So from my side, we don't really, you know, get involved in actually providing valuations for our, our users on our platform. Uh, but we what we do is we sit on a on a ton of data. So primarily, you know, that data shows us a few things. One is financials <laughs> is really at the end of the day, uh, a majority of what the valuation is going to be based on. Um, you know, most most of these uh, savvy buyers are looking for uh, three three years of solid financials uh, to, and, and, you know, to normalize numbers, uh, and, and sit on, um, you know, evaluations that's comfortable on both ends. Uh, and then there's a, a there's, you know, especially in the SMB and, and microspace, there's, uh, you know, substantial goodwill involved as well, whether it's IP or good or, 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 um, I, I you know, IP or, uh, goodwill on and anything, you know, such as branding or whatnot. So we see a lot of conversations incorporating that into valuations, but, from our platform, it's pretty agnostic depending on the space or sector the business is in, but we're still seeing anywhere from, you know, three to five X, uh, you know, EBITDA. So uh, that's that's what we're seeing from a platform perspective. Perfect, thank you. Matthias, do you wanna, um, have you got anything about valuations there? Yeah, so generally it's so the, in SBA land, the, the actual valuation gets done by a, a third party firm. So basically the equivalent of a business appraiser, um, I, either kept during the underwriting process or after the loans approved, there was some variance space in the bank. I myself don't really get super involved in like the valuation piece of things. Essentially it's, you know, as long as the, the deal structure works that the buyer is looking to transact on, um, normally like it, it's fine from a valuation standpoint, but to Nunzio's point, like three X is kind of the, the floor of what I've seen. I haven't really seen deals have gone to the five X range because most of those deals tend to not really be super compatible with SB financing unless you're using the, the Perry pursue structure as a buyer or you have the SB seven day loan plus the conventional financing on top. Um, generally I, I typically direct buyers to like pure comps by GCF valuation or have websites like that before they submit the LOI, just to kind of make sure that they are overpaying relative to what the market multiples are. Fantastic. Chris. Yeah. Um, I think it, that multiple, it depends a lot on 
what risk are you taking on as a buyer of that new business? The, the, what you're multiplying by is that normalized cash flow of the business, but you know, what is generating that cash flow? Is it, is it all on the owner um, that you're going to be having to transfer a lot of relationships? How recurring is that revenue? How sticky is that revenue? How concentrated is that? Are those earnings? Um, so those are a lot of things we're going to go into, whether it is on that lower side of being that 3x or, or is it going to be higher up at more of a 5x? Um, so. I can build off of that because, you know, we, we see a lot of um, kind of angling to, to, to get people to pay as little as possible for some of these businesses, which, you know, is a worthy goal. But it, it depends on what, what kind of what kind of acquisition do you want to make? Do you want to make one that, you know, you're going to be in the trenches, um, you know, very, very the business being very dependent on you? Or are you willing to pay another turn of EBITDA? So pay three, I'm sorry, pay four X instead of three X, but you get, you know, you get a management layer. Um, you can get a little bit bigger of a company. Um, and when you're in that four X, you know, pushing up to five X range, um, it takes a little bit more creative structuring, but, but a lot of people try and put themselves into that bucket too, because of the, um, the perceived, you know, uh, the risk advantage by doing something like that versus just getting down and dirty on price and, and hoping you're able to work your way out of it. But yeah. That, to, Ke- to Kevin's point, there's a lot to be said about buying bigger when it makes sense so that you are at the person, the trenches turning the wrench me- metaphorically speaking. Well, then that brings the question like, so is there any common mistakes? Cause if you said, if you, as you say, get down and dirty on price, could that be a common mistake people make when they go through the valuation process? I think people are often attracted to businesses where you have um, industry multiples um, pretty low. So my favorite example of this is roofing companies. Um, so you can buy you can buy a, a good roofing company, a good meaning large roofing company for three x. So you know I've seen I've seen some uh, roofing companies almost two million dollars in EBITDA that are that are going to trade at three x. So that on, on paper it looks like a home run, but most of the people coming into this are not former tradesmen. They're not former you know they they don't have a lot of experience doing hourly work or service work or any physical work. Um, they've never managed anybody. Uh, they've never managed blue collar employees. And so it, 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 it really depends on what situation you're coming from uh, on if that 3X is more risky uh, based on, you know, what, your ex- what experience you bring to the table. So, you know, I, for me, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to go in there and, and know how to necessarily manage roofers. You're, you're dealing with a different kind of uh, employee base. You're dealing with employees that, I mean, let's face it, they're going to show up you know, uh, hung over from the night before, or maybe just got their day started a little early with uh, a few Bud Lights, or maybe they're, um, they're showing up to the job site, hung, uh, you know, on, on drugs or something. It happens. And I've, I've talked to many finance people who have, who have done this uh, and have seen the horror stories of somebody just getting in over their head, managing a subset of employees that they just don't have experience managing. Um, if you've spent your entire life in white collar jobs, it is a rude awakening. Uh, to suddenly be on a job site like that, so um, you know you're you'll see, you're seeing a lot more uh, truth telling on Twitter recently, where people are talking about the difficulties of managing, you know, home service businesses, you know, trades businesses in general. Um, it's not 
you know, all rosy as sometimes the, the picture is painted. These, these are real, uh, these are real issues that, that the guys, you know, running these businesses have to deal with uh, every day. Yeah, I, I've seen that as well with you know, a lot of my clients after they close in the business. You know, they, they come from these background of, like you said, more of the white collar job. And then they get into this position where um, they're, they're managing certain employees. And those employees sometimes take advantage of them where, you know, they, they think they're being nice. Employee asks to get paid early because something happened to their car or, or um, lots of things are along, along those lines. And they kind of get bullied because they're all too trusting. Um, and uh, if, if you let yourself get pushed around like that, uh, you know, it can set a bad precedent. So. That's an interesting take, actually, getting the whole, getting bullied by the old employees. Um, yeah, I hope that doesn't happen too often, but I'm sure it would. Yeah, I think I've had, I've had three mm-hmm. clients within the last month or two that have had circumstances really close to that where, um, I mean, certainly what always happens is that everyone wants a raise after closing. That's, that's very common. Chris, have have any of them been ours? You don't name names, but just out of curiosity. Yeah, I've seen two that were two that were ours that were similar circumstances. I mean, nothing like major, but but you know, I think it's a, a bit of a learning curve of um, realizing when when to give a little bit and then when to uh, when to hold your ground and and uh, not give in. So, got it. Nessie, just to jump in, one interesting discussion point that I think might be good to cover is um, investor terms like in the acquisition space. So when Kevin did his deal, which was a, a larger acquisition, he had like an equity raise component of it. And one question I always get asked by people, like right now I'm working a deal with a guy looking to do an equity raise is what, what's market and like how do investor terms work in the space? I, Kevin, I don't know if you'd be comfortable kept talking about that just from a high level, but it might be interesting for the, the, the room to hear. Yeah, from a from an investor investor perspective, um, I, I I tend to like to see uh, some kind of a step up, uh, and then I'll explain what that is. And then you also have a pref rate, so there'll be an accumulating pref between ten and twelve percent, which basically means that the, your investors get paid plus interest um, first before and until until you return capital that you take from investors. Uh, you don't take any money out of the business uh, as uh, you're a class B shareholder versus class A shareholders uh, who are investors, who are outside capital. Um, a step up uh, is basically getting um, kind of being in the money uh, to use an options related term um, right away. So you go in and um, if I give you, you know, $50,000 uh, in in cash, then my my a two x step up would make that worth a hundred thousand um, dollars in the deal. So I I get more equity uh, for uh, with with less money. So a one x step up is is just is just that fifty thousand dollars, right? There's no increase, but you go to a two x step up, that fifty thousand dollars becomes a hundred thousand dollars. So your investors get a theoretically a better deal. They get more equity for the money that they put in. So the terms that I uh, typically look for, I step up between one and a half to two and a half um, and a pref rate between 10 and 12%. Um, I had to do, I did about an $800,000 equity raise last year <laughs> at this time uh, during the holidays. And, um, you know, I, it was, it was the first equity raise I had done. Um, 
I was surprised pleasantly at, at how quickly it was able to go. I think um, I, I raised all 800,000 in, in five or six weeks. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a high net worth individual network. I don't come from finance. I uh, had an operations job at a hospital. Um, so I built that network just off of connections I made through Twitter, um, you know, and, and, and second connections that people would introduce me to. And, um, I went around with, um, an investment deck and a teaser and, you know, pitched my, pitched my deal. I don't know, almost 300 times probably before I was able to, to, to get all the money that I needed. Um, and, uh, I, I certainly hope it's easier the second time. That's, that's one of the reasons we started fruition capital is because the, uh, the equity raise process is incredibly stressful, especially if you have to raise a lot of money. If you're raising close to a million dollars and your, your minimum check size is $50,000, well, that's a lot of people on your cap table. Uh, and my cap table is, is between 10 and 12. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but it, it, that's a lot of people. Um, and with a company, with, with a firm like Fruition Capital, we, we take out the, the chunk, a larger chunk of your equity raise um, so like in my deal, I had to raise 800 fruition would come in and write a check for five to 600,000. And then I would be left with, you know, a $200,000 raise. Well, that's a hell of a lot more manageable for somebody, you know, completely new to the space, uh, to be able to do this. So we, we wanted to be able to provide both exposure to investors, to this asset class, as well as solve the equity raise problem for searchers, uh, just like I went through. Oh, Mateus, you you unmuted too. So I was going to pause to see if you were going to speak. Yeah, I, I saw that you unmuted, so I didn't want to jump in here. But I, I was going to ask Kevin, Kevin, what are, like, if you're looking at the margin between a one and a half to two times step up, what are the levers there? Is it basically the higher the step up, the lower the prep? Or Kev, how do you see, like, the, the determining factor of the sponsor, you know, go higher in the step up or, or lower? I think it depends on the kind of uh, investors you want to attract and what your what your end goal for the business is. So if if you have a desire to retain as much equity as possible, um, then you should offer a lower step up, but be prepared to offer a very, very healthy prep rate. And so you're basically seeking people who want yield on their investment. Uh, they want to make the highest return possible. So you offer them, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say 15% as a pref, you know, that's that you would definitely need to counterbalance it if you want to come in low on the step up and the inverse is true too. So if, if you are okay, giving up more equity in the company, but you want to have essentially lower payments, uh, cause you're worried about, you know, debt load from the SBA, seller note, whatever else you can offer a higher step up and a lower pref rate to make sure that, you know, your cash flow is, is, uh, a lot more manageable. Um, so it's, and there's, there's not a one size fits all type approach here. It's, it's very much dependent on you, the sponsor, the deal, you know, how much risk is in the deal. Like, so for my deal, if it, if it was an HVAC company, or if it was, you know, something a little bit more tried and true in this space, I probably could have gotten away with more, uh, sponsor favored terms, I offered pretty aggressive terms. I offered a high step up and a, a reasonably high pref because you could have you could make the argument that, that my deal was more discretionary and, and tied more to real estate. I'm, I I bought a textile company. Um, that that's it doesn't really matter if that's true or not. That was the perception. 
so that was the perception when I'm going to investors. Um, I felt like I needed to, especially to raise quickly, offer very attractive terms. Um, and also it's a, it's a bet on yourself for the future too, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to keep, I, I have, let's say 10 people on my cap table, um, that they got, that got excellent terms through me, provided everything goes well. And I, I return capital and I continue sending them, you know, distributions. Um, they're going to want to sign up for the next deal. Um, because I, I treated them well. I, I respected the, the, the skill set that they brought in addition to the capital that they brought. Um, so it's a bit of a strategic game that way too. Um, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't suggest that anybody go in there trying to, um, just try and lowball everybody. I think, I think it's going to be more frustrating for you. Just get in the game, you know, and if you have to give up more of the company or you have to, you know, have a higher prep rate or whatever, just do it. It's, it's, it's not worth fighting about. Just, just do what you need to do terms wise in order to get in the deal. Um, if you believe in it that much, which I believed in mine, um, it, it's, it's a rounding error at the end of the day. I think that's a good point is to just get in the game. We should, if we had like an S and B merch, um, site, we should just have shirts to say, just get in the game. Is that like a side business you guys are going to set up? You got a textile company there to design stuff for you. I'm constantly full of ideas. I'm, I'm just <laughs> spooling with ideas. It's just the time that it takes to do to do different things. Um, one person we, we do have, have the here, platform to distribute it if you need it, Matthias. <laughs> they're they're only 24 hours in the day, Nunzio, and I. I'm constantly burning the candle on both sides. Um, one person we have here in the audience that I think would be a good person to have be a speaker, Nessie, is Colin Gates, if he's down for talking. So he bought a commercial painting business um, earlier this year. Chris was actually involved in the financial – actually, no, not the financial due diligence side. He's he's Colin's accountant, but I don't know if he'd want to talk about his deal potentially. I have invited him up. We'll see if he responds. So, Colin, we can he we can see you. Come on up if you can. But at least I've tried to invite him up. You know, X can always be a little bit funny sometimes, but I am trying. But um, I'm going to go back, Kevin, just a quick question right now is uh, when you were talking about the raise and you said you you did all these pitches and you learned a lot. Can you tell us, like, what would you what have you distilled down from that is like how you would go about it again next time? (laughs) Uh. Yeah, there are definitely things I would do uh, differently next time. Uh, one of the one of the stupid things I kind of did, which you know, looking back, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Is I, I had a I got a list from um, from uh, Pursuant Capital, uh, who is represented on on this platform too. Sam Rosati is the principal there. Um, if you don't follow him, you should look him up and go follow him. He's a he's just a, a really good dude uh, and very very intelligent. Um, so he, he had like a, a, a small list of investors that had, had expressed interest in investing in these small business deals. Um, well, I just went, I, I got the list and I just kind of went from A to Z um, and just cold emailed, cold called some of these people. Um, and it turns out that some people in the A's uh, had bigger checks to write and were, you know, a lot hungrier for deals than people at the end of the list and the Z's. So I, I, ha- I worked out my, the, the kinks of my pitch on people that probably would have invested in the deal had I developed my, my presentation a little bit more. Um, there's one firm in particular I'm thinking of where like they were writing, 
you know, there weren't many at that time, just 18 months ago, that were writing $500,000 checks, but one of them was at the top of the list. And they were one of my first conversations. And I'm reasonably confident that I could have gotten uh, an investment from them if they were, you know, once I kind of figured out uh, how to pitch to investors. And, and a lot of it goes back to what I was saying before is what kind of investors do you want? Do you want somebody who's, who's, who wants to make money on the exit uh, and therefore needs more equity? Or do you want somebody who wants to make money on yield uh, and wants a higher prep rate? And who do you want to attract? Um, and so once I kind of figured out who I wanted to attract, then I was able to make a more targeted pitch. I was able to reframe some of the, you know, financial forecasts. Um, so yeah, I mean, did I answer your question? There's a, there's a lot of things I certainly could have done differently. Yes, that answered the question. Thank you. Um, Colin, you have made it up onto the stage. Welcome to the panel. Hey, how's it going? Can you guys hear me a little bit better? Yes, we can. Do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm uh, Colin Gates. Uh, I worked with Matthias on a deal out of Michigan. Um, I bought a commercial painting company, um, and I've been operating it for six-ish months now. Chris is my CPA, so um, yeah, that's pretty much my background. He's currently on his jet, which is why it sounds like there's a wind in the background. Yeah, my F-150 jet. Um, but yeah, I just got back. I'm coming home from a job. So we're, we're trying to wrap everything up before winter comes because we're in the upper Midwest. So the weather turns and you can't do exterior painting in the winter. So we work on Sundays. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what business that you've just gone through and um, talk us through it? Yeah, sure. So um, I think I probably bought a smaller business, uh, like 300, 400K SDE, um, commercial painting business. We do all exterior. Um, and I did Matthias's proprietary full standby um, financing solution. Um, I, I know the previous guy was just talking about investors and stuff um i mean i think that's great it just i mean you got to know your personality type i i wasn't really interested in having investors i i didn't want to go down that road so as a result of that a little smaller of a deal where i could keep everything and had to use a little higher leverage to to get the liquidity for postpose was was what i what i decided to do um probably now what i'd be a little more first to speak on is post-close operations of a smaller business. I don't know if you want to hear about that at all. Yeah, go on. Give us the alpha. Um, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I bought a smaller business. So I guess something, I, some advice I would give if I was a searcher kind of trying to do what I was trying to do is just get ready to wear all hats um, and try and offload any hats that you can um like for me like it's a huge help having chris as my cpa like i don't have a ton of time to dial in the books um as much as i would like like i pretty much focus on getting revenue through the door as much as possible and profit um because my window is short i only had four or five months to make revenue for this year post close so that's really what i focused on and uh 
like I said, offloading the hat, the accounting hat to Chris was a, was a huge help. Um, he, he saved me 26 K that I forgot to invoice. Um, so yeah, that was huge. The other thing is, uh, I know there's a ton of opportunity in these small deals. Yeah. They're like, you gotta, you gotta maybe you're buying a bit more of a job. Like that's a pretty common theme on, um, Twitter opposing smaller deals. But I mean, if you're doing one of these deals, you should probably plan on being a workaholic for a little bit anyway. And, um, I think there's a, there's a flip side to going smaller. So you, you really get to like understand every role in the company. You get a, you get to see every side of your business. And then once you're kind of poised for growth, um, I think that gives you just like a better ladder to, to take advantage of that climb. So, yeah. One, uh, just to jump in with a question here, not to kind of take your role as a moderator, Nessie, I know one kind of topic on Twitter is like good brokers versus bad brokers and kind of dealing with easy sellers versus, versus like sellers attorneys, Colin, would you want to speak kind of in generalities about your experience working with your sellers attorney and how you kept traversed and threaded the needle there? Yeah. Um, so my sellers are like, they're so they, they stayed on post close and they're and they're a huge help now but they are not well versed in selling a business obviously it was their, the only one they'd ever done and they hired uh, a non MA lawyer and they was just like sandbagging the deal the entire way uh it probably took six seven months um to close my deal um like they didn't want to the, the seller's attorney didn't want to give exclusivity during the LOI, which was the first hurdle. Um, they didn't want to, I think, indemnify against liability post-close. Um, basically just doing everything. The lawyer, not so much the sellers, were doing pretty much everything they could to kind of kill the deal, it seemed like, or at least like make their check a little bit bigger. Um, so, I don't know, me and Matthias kind of just kept at it kept going and then eventually I was like all right we either close or we're walking away and that kind of lit a fire under their ass and and we ended up getting the deal closed and it's financially it's been I think promising post-close um maybe Chris would agree with that and uh the operations and my relationship with the seller it's been good post-close so you can't totally judge a book by its cover like a smooth close process uh, probably doesn't indicate a smooth post-close process and a rough <laughs> pre-close process doesn't ind- indicate the inverse either. So I don't know if that speaks to what you were trying to get at with us. Yeah, no, yeah, completely nailed it. Yeah, yep. Colin, right after close, you, uh, one of the levers you pulled was uh, changing your admin from go overseas with it essentially that was like almost day one that was a lever you pulled how has that gone for you i know that's something people talk a lot on twitter about is just uh, outsource everything um can you talk more on how that's been and whether you think that was a good good move for you yeah um i mean to be like i think it's a great move i think it's a no-brainer but you you've also got to have the time to train too um so i'm kind of looking forward to this winter season to actually like just spend a lot more face time with my virtual assistant right now I've, I've kind of designated her to like medial tasks, but she's definitely got the horsepower to get like a lot more involved. She's, I mean, she's a killer, but I don't have time to like 
I haven't had time to completely train her. And a lot of the admin work, um, she serves in a support role to the old, to the seller who still handles a lot of that. Um, but, um, probably the main benefit was on the books, there was a secretary making 50, 60 K didn't even have a computer. Um, so I was able to terminate her post-close and kind of drive her, uh, wages right to the bottom line, which was nice. Um, so yeah, that's my experience. I find that wild that there's somebody there that with not even a computer and earning that type of, I know that sounds crazy. Maybe I'm a, but wow. It's, it must be quite interesting when you come into a business and go, this is, this makes no sense. And then clearing some of those bad decisions. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, it was, it, it was actually like, a, like I was happy to find that, you know, um, because I knew that was upside that I didn't know during an underwriting. Like I knew there was a secretary. I just figured she was doing stuff like me. I don't really know how I, I maybe could have got a little more granular during my uh, due diligence, but as as bad of a decision that was on the seller's part, it was just all upside for me. When that comes, I think that's where it gets really interesting as well, is how important is the due diligence? And now you've done this and you've been going through this process, what would you say to yourself if you were about to do it again? Um, well, I know the questions to ask now. Like, I would have been a lot more heavy-handed about getting to know the employees made it made a point about that because I, they I got lucky like I my due diligence in hindsight I would give myself like a 50 out of 100 or a D um, I didn't know the right questions to ask I didn't know where to push on uh, terms of due diligence and what I actually needed to see in the business um, and I would just be much heavy more ha heavy-handed in my in the next acquisition for sure just like getting to know the employees like you need, yeah, uh, eliminate the key man risk is, I think, the the term, probably. Colin, can you talk about how you found the deal and just give your background pre-deal, what, what you did before this? Yeah, so um, I, I've got kind of two backgrounds. I've got like a, a kind of a blue-collar background in the sense that I grew up on a, a farm in rural upstate New York. Um, my parent, my dad grew that business a lot. Um, so I've kind of seen the entrepreneurial side of that and the blue collar side of that, but, um, I kind of have a more traditional searcher background in the sense that I was white collar before this, uh, worked in private equity, had a reasonably high salary, stable, cushy job. Um, but really wasn't doing it for me. So yeah, that was kind of my background before. What was the, oh, sorry, what was the rest of your question, Matthias? I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah, the, the second part, Colin, was how you found the deal. Oh, how I found the deal, yeah. Biz, buy, sell. Um, I don't think it's, like, necessarily the best way, but there are a lot of a lot of opportunity on that side, I, I think. I know one of my best friends did the same thing as me. He's having a similar experience, a successful acquisition. Same thing, he found his business on biz, buy, sell. Um, I think, like, I don't know, this silver tsunami, as you always say, it, it, it's definitely a real thing. Um, the problem isn't good businesses. There's a lot out there. The problem is like there's a shortage of people that can actually take the stress and operate them at the scale they're at post-close, you know. 
Nunzi, yeah. are you reacting to that? Where, what's your head to where that is? Just some competitive fun. No, I'm joking. No, no, I agree with them. I think, you know, one thing that I will push up against is, we, you know, the inventory side that we're seeing is, sure, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of deals coming to market, especially north of the border where, you know, I would say 70% of our focus is. Um, uh, and, and most of these micro deals, believe it or not, are growing in size. And one thing that we think about a lot as we're, you know, you know, asking questions, um, uh, you know, to our audience and, and looking at the data is we're, we're seeing that the smaller of the micro deals or the smaller of the SMB deals are just not surviving. So that average, you know, selling price is growing um, um, and, and the quality of those deals are getting better. But from our perspective, there's there's a ton of buyers coming to the table um, now, you know, is there, is there, you know, a conversation around, you know, how qualified they are? Of course, there's a conversation about how qualified they are. Um, but I think right now we're at around 96% of our users, um, you know, identifying as, as buyers. So we do have a lot of buyers at the table looking for, um, you know, great, great deals. Is there any buyers that you decide, so you, as you say, you've got 96% of your users identify as buyers, but do you sit there and go, actually, realistically, I probably only want to work with 40% of them or 60? Do you have a way of ranking them that, of how you choose to work with them or like, how does that work? Well, not really. So I guess just to step back a second, the way we actually work as a platform or the or the user experience that you would have with our platform is the same user experience that you would have with a Facebook marketplace or, um, you know, or, or, or a, a... This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. GG or Craigslist sort of thing, right? So we actually don't go deep on our relationships with our users like Matthias and and. and Kevin and Chris and, and Colin would go deep uh, as advisors. We're more those. We're more uh, from from the perspective of a community builder, matchmaker, and providing the resources needed to educate our audiences. So we actually don't go deep on, you know, figuring out, uh, you know, who our users are. The relationship just isn't there. So it's a very low touch, high volume relationship. I love that. Thank you. Um, when we mentioned, I think earlier before, and I wanted to come back and touch on it, cause Colin, you were you said you have to wear every hat, and Kevin, I'm pretty sure you've had this experience as well with the business you've bought. Can you talk us through a bit more about what's the challenge with that? Did I just rug? Was that question no. for Colin or for for Kevin? Either, both. Um, I mean, anybody that that does this and buys a business and, and they have an expectation of not wearing multiple hats is diluted. Um, there's no such thing as passive business ownership unless you're, you know, a silent partner, <laughs> unless you're just putting the money in. Uh, so yeah, if you, if you, if you come to this and you think you're not going to get your hands dirty, I, I, I got news for you. Um, now you can mitigate some of that by, by buying larger. Um, that's what I did. You know, I, I, in fact, the first acquisition I tried to do, uh, I, I went the same route as Colin and, and bought and, and was looking at a smaller company. I didn't want to take on any money because frankly, I didn't know that I could, uh, or, you know, how to, how to do any raid raise or anything like that. Um, 
So you can mitigate some of that by buying larger, but but if you're buying a smaller company, you know, sub 500 SDE, uh, you the business is going to be very dependent on you. Um, and you are going to be, you're going to be HR, you're going to be the COO, you're going to be the CFO, you're going to be the CMO, you're going to, I mean, pick all the C, all you, you occupy all the C-suite uh, chairs. Um, and, you know, you bring on contractors and fractional partners to help you out. That's what, you know, Colin is doing with Chris, but, um, but finding those people and, and just getting those systems kind of up and running is, is a time consuming process. Uh, but you, you quickly realize that, you know, you, you cannot do it all on your own. You can make the final call on a, on a lot of this stuff and you should, it's your money at risk, but you need to bring in other people, uh, to kind of round out your skill set because you're not going to be an expert in absolutely everything. I love that. Colin, have you got anything to add to that? Just to jump into the comment here, Nessie, Colin, just to be very clear, there should only be one hat that you're wearing, and, and I think you know exactly what, what hat that should be. Yeah, the full standby. Yeah, I mean, I kind of I kind of agree exactly with what, what Kevin said, you know. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think you're a serious person if you're trying to do a, a small business with the passive investment theme. It just is ridiculous. Um, it doesn't exist. Or maybe it does. Good for you if you find it. But, you know, I think that kind of I've, I've got plenty of friends, you know, they're probably in that 96 percent uh, of business searchers, you know, like they're not serious. It's, it's just not realistic. There's I don't know. And, and it's like, why would you do this if if you want to be passive? You know, go you can buy the S&P 500. It's not for me. Yep, I love that. I completely agree. Yeah, there's a reason that, you know, when we we think that this asset class is should return between 30 and 35 percent IRR, and that's because it's active. Um, you have to actually do something to to earn that higher return um, versus like, you know, like Colin said, just buy the S&P 500, get your 7 percent and move on. So therefore, going into kind of a bit more on the risk sides, but what then are the most like probably effective risk mitigation tactic then against say, you know, you want to, as you said, you want a 35% IRR, like what's your mitigation tactic to ensure that happens? Kevin. Uh, I, I was going to say, you know, structuring, uh, making sure that, you know, you're, you're able to, um, you've actually modeled it out. So you've, you've given yourself, maybe you're, maybe you're underwriting, you know, to 40% or 35% IRR, hoping that, you know, even if you miss a little bit, uh, you're still going to provide your invest investors with above average market returns. Um, just also focusing on your cash management, uh, recognizing kind of where you are in, in the economic cycle. Uh, is it time to hoard cash or is it time to reinvest into the business? What's the stage of the business? Is it growing when you bought it? Does it need to grow? Um, are you simply just going to focus on repaying debt and returning capital? Um, you don't necessarily have to have all that figured out uh, at the beginning and, and your answer can change. But um, but it really starts in the beginning when you're doing your modeling and figuring out you know how you're going to attack this problem. Um, and knowing that, you know, if you, especially if you take outside capital, 
um, you you have a you have an extra weight on your shoulders. You have you know people that I send investor updates. I just sent one a couple hours ago. Uh, I send them monthly with monthly financials, um, so they have eyes on everything that I do. Um, now they're not second guessing everything I do, but but I felt it important and I I committed to to be able to you know close the books every month and send out the send out the you know a quick investor update along with you know the 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 financials. So. Um, Transparency is always key in these deals, especially, you know, with the investor pool that we have. Um, they genuinely want you to succeed beyond just having the money involved in your deal. People are nice people. Uh, they, you know, they, they want to be, they, they too could go invest in the S&P 500 and, and go do that or go, go into private equity investments. And, uh, but the reason they like this space is because we're sort of, we're very boots on the ground grassroots uh, entrepreneurs going into these small companies with a lot of risk, putting our livelihoods on the line, uh, personally guaranteeing a lot of debt. Um, and there's something attractive about that. There's something exciting about somebody who's willing to push all their chips in the center and, you know, go buy a textile company in North Carolina and move his family halfway across the country. You know, there's a compelling story there. Um, so even if you miss your, your targets, your, your IRR targets, uh, just the fact that you're communicating and, and that you've been transparent with the whole process, I, I, that's that's more than enough. Um, you know, not everybody expects, you know, so like I modeled that I was going to return, you know, a bunch of capital in year one. Well, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, the the sales have been relatively flat this year. This has been an infrastructure building year. You know, I came in, we didn't have a website, um, even though we sell a product and all of our competitors have one. Um, we were on an old legacy operating system, uh, or, you know, enterprise software, uh, an AS 400 system from the sixties. Um, I'm rebuilding everything into, uh, into an e-commerce platform. Um, there's just been a lot of investment back into the company. And I, I can't say I understood the full scope of that prior to acquiring the company. Um, I'm, I'm sort of fond of saying right now that, you know, you don't really know what you bought until you've actually bought it. Um, so I would say, Colin, don't beat yourself up too much about your due diligence process because you're never going to learn it all. Um, I, I, I can certainly attest to that. And I think anybody with, you know, a lot more experience than me would say the same. Um, you get better at asking questions, but, uh, you know, ultimately you're, you, there's, there's always going to be that informa information asymmetry between buyer and seller. That's an interesting one as well. And as you said, you mentioned that having your team and, and Colin, you've mentioned about Chris coming in and saving you some substantial money. Like, how did you guys even find each other and connect? Uh, that'd be Matthias, I think, because <laughs> he's the connector um, between the two of us. But uh, Twitter has been big for for growing my network in this space, for sure. Uh, there's, I mean, you got like 100 people on this call right now and um I think just getting out there and talking to the people that are doing it uh, or in the arena, as they say, um, is really big for, for growing your network around people um, that are doing what you want to do. Matthias, sounds like you're connected into everyone. Um, it, pretty good number of people. Not not everyone, though. So try, try to do my best to help people. I love that. We have someone requesting to come up on stage, so let's uh, let's bring him up, Michael. I think uh, he's just coming up now. I think he might have a question for you guys. 
Hopefully this works. Michael, can you hear us? Yeah, this is Michael Lee. Welcome up on stage. Do you want to ask the ask your question? Oh, I just uh, I I've been in the accounting I've been in the accounting services space. I've bought three accounting firms myself into my own platform, and I'm noticing a lot of interest from a lot of non-accountants that were wanting to buy, um, whether they're search fund backed or non-search fund backed, uh, the wanting to buy in the accounting space. Um, I just I just find it interesting. There's so much interest in the accounting space from non-accountants. I love to hear people's thoughts of why there's seems to be so much interest in particularly the past couple of years in the accounting space um, coming from somebody who's been in the accounting space for a long time and, you know, done, done multiple acquisitions. Um, I just, I just love to hear people's thoughts about that. Why are people interested in, in this, in, you know, uh, in this type of space? Chris, maybe, you, maybe you thought field that one. I could speak a little bit to that. I actually just had a client who's a non-accountant close on a business uh, two days ago. Um, and I think there's, I mean, there's no doubt there's a shortage of accountants currently in the country, um, which, uh, you know, leads to there being a lot of opportunity. Um, there's certainly no shortage of business out there and, uh, a need for good people that can do the work. Um, another thing is I think a lot of people get sucked into seeing some of the firms that get listed online, most of which are actually pretty, pretty pretty terrible investments to buy. Um, so I think there's a little bit of people just seeing, oh, I can buy, uh, buy this firm uh, for, you know, at two times where everything else is listed at three to five. Um, but I mean, you, maybe you can attest to this as well, Michael, since you bought a couple yourself, but the majority of the listings you see for accounting firms, they, they're listed low because they, they're almost not worth buying. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that too, where people just get sucked into, seeing these multiples um, on accounting firms being really bad. Now, that being said, there's <clears throat> certainly plenty of firms out there that are, are worth buying. Um, and there is definitely a shortage of people willing to do that work. So if you can uh, find a way to be more efficient and come into the come into the firm with more of a um, business owner perspective rather than the technician, um, you know, accountants, I think, meet the mold of someone that often is a technician rather than someone that's running the business and, um, and, and growing it as like a CEO would and, and often get sucked into the weeds, uh, which prohibits them being able to grow. Um, so those are a few of the things that I've seen around, around people, uh, looking to buy accounting firms is they, they often get sucked into these really low multiples that are, you know, these firms that are paper forward and there it's all the owner doing all the work, um, which, which really is not probably a great firm to buy, especially if you're not an accountant, you're not going to be able, even able to do any of the work. Um, but then there, there is an opportunity that if you can get into that right firm and come at it from, you know, I'm going to be the business owner here. I'm not going to be in the day to day. Uh, there's, there's a lot of work out there that needs to be done in the accounting space. Uh, and I think that that's attracting some people to want to go and buy those firms. Michael, what's your take? Yeah, I think I think uh, you know I, uh, I I get reached out to a lot of uh, potential buyers every single week who want advice on how to buy their first or um, how to even get into the space. And I always tell people, buyer beware. Most of the listings, as Chris said, are terrible listings. You have brokers listing firms, you know, doing under two, three hundred thousand um, dollars, which means that the owner likely is 
billing almost all of that work. Why would you know? Why would somebody want to buy someone else's accounting work if if the owner is doing it on their own versus versus a staff is is a conundrum to me. Uh, but uh, so buyer beware on that, and also buyer beware on the fact that uh, the EBITDA the EBITDA and SDE might seem high, but the reality is that oftentimes um, that is because the owners or owners are billing you know a ton of tax work on their own a ton of audit work on their own and they've their credential to do that or they've got these deep relationships for 20 30 years with these clients that um, no questions asked and so a new buyer comes in thinking they can keep that relationship going the reality is um, you better be a skilled very very well-known practitioner in order to keep a relationship like that going that's been with one person for 20 30 years um, my expectation on both most of the accounting firm acquisitions we've done is we only looking at firms doing over a million dollars. We want the owner to basically be only reviewing and signing returns. We want all the staff having all the client relationship and expect 10 to 15 percent of your staff to leave at, after close in the first 30 to 90 days, mainly because they're just they're just near retirement. And uh, and then expect another 10 to 15 percent to leave because you want to make changes. You want to you know take old practices, make them new. And then also expect this, uh, expect in the first 90 days to lose about 10 to 15 percent of your client base because they're old. I mean, most accounting firms are serving clients that are in their you know, 10 percent of the client bases are in their 60s and 70s. And they're used to coming to an office and meeting with the actual tax practitioner. So there's just some buyer beware. And then also the gross margins generally are not as accurate as they they seem to be presented because most accounting firms aren't putting full cost of labor into into cost of, into their gross margin calculation. So they're putting cost of labor down at the expense level. So you really got to challenge the owner to, and the broker to calculate cost of goods sold and gross margin accurately when you're evaluating a purchase. Another thing, I'm curious to get your opinion on this, Michael, since you've done a few of these. Um, you know, I've talked to probably a dozen people this year that came in with the ideas of they were going to roll up all the accounting firms in their area and um, aside from some of the issues we already talked about, one of the big issues with combining accounting firms is just the integration of systems. Um, how have you approached that with your acquisitions? Have you been pretty particular that the system that the firms you're buying have to be pretty tech forward or on a similar tax software or similar practice management software? How have you approached that? Um, yeah, that's a great question, Chris. So um, on firm integration, we're looking nationally. So we're only looking at book um, uh, firms that are doing majority bookkeeping, 51% or higher bookkeeping services and advisory, and or traditional term is CAS, spelled C-A-S, um, and the minority tax preparation services. We are not looking at anything that, that requires high tax planning. So if you see a firm listed that says we, make, we, do, we do a lot of high-end tax planning, buyer beware unless you are a skilled tax planner. Uh, that really requires some skill and some pretty sophisticated tax planning software. The other thing is for tax preparation, you do want to integrate firms with similar software. So UltraTax, um, the, the, the first and second firms we bought were on UltraTax um, for tax. And so any firm we buy going forward has to be on UltraTax. If they're on LACERT, CCH, or any other kind of firm, even if the firm looks great, we're just not going to consider them because the tax conversion the is 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 hard very difficult 
and the vendors uh, are not going to be helpful in any way with your integration. Um, so you, and that also dictates the type of tax practitioner you even hire, because most tax practitioners are very used to and comfortable with one or two pieces of tax software, and they will choose their employer based on it. Uh, so that also goes into labor, you know, the labor decision. We've been lucky too, in that because we focused on bookkeeping, we're able to leverage offshore and nearshore talent. A quarter of our staff is in South America, and that helps us keep a competitive advantage. We're not relying on local tax staff or local bookkeeping staff. Uh, bookkeeping and accounting is the lowest unemployment rate in the country of all industries. 50 to 75% of CPAs will, will retire in the next five years. So there is a huge opportunity, but it's not for the fan of heart for sure. And so if somebody already has an accounting background, this is an op- awesome opportunity to be an owner to leave their to leave one of the big public accounting firms and own a piece of the action. But they they have to get be prepared um, to put really th- great thought around integration and also buying that first firm. I also you know I, I also think there's a better strategy around as you said, Chris, like around the tech stack and around similar types of services versus I want to just focus on one local area because in reality, the way services are done in by multiple accounting firms in one local area tend to be quite different. And also the types of clients they attract tend to be quite different. Uh, so we've even taken a strategy of, you know, we only do firms that serve small businesses. There are a lot of firms that will focus on like individuals or high net worth individuals or maybe they're focused on regular middle-class individuals. We avoid those and really focus on small businesses. There's firms that focus on startups, right? And a firm focused on startup is actually very different than a firm focused on small business. Um, or that we avoid firms focused on restaurants uh, because restaurants are a different animal all, the, all in themselves. So, yeah, so I think a lot of the things you said and, and things to consider are important. I think that's really interesting. And you, I like the way you mentioned the fact that restaurants, for example, are a completely different business to startups and everything else. I think that's true. I am not, um, my husband started a business this year. And I think it's been very interesting listening to all you guys and say what's gone wrong. What's, in fact, it was very start of this year. What's gone wrong? What's gone right? And I think it's really interesting when you mentioned about things like ta- he did buy. Um, he bought into a business is probably the better way to put it and is now the CEO and runs that business but when you're mentioning about tax and things like that it's been an interesting learning curve for sure so I think you're right and it's definitely the one thing I think we've struggled with or learning I think is a better way to put it is cash flow and getting the cash flow right or not right as we found out initially That's, that's great, Nessie. Yeah, cash was really important, and most I, I think most business owners, first-time buyers, and people who are who become first-time operators, they underestimate that even if a business shows nice EBITDA or SCE, you really should understand cash flow cycle, because high SCE does not mean uh, the cash flow is there at every moment, or that you understanding the timing of both your customer payments and then when when your largest uh, expense, which generally is payroll, um, is going to hit. And so, you know, the, the rule of thumb, and this is really Walmart, Walmart's rule can be applied to almost every business is to maximize cash flow. You want to 
you know, push out your vendors as far as possible, get the best terms as possible from your vendors and create great relations with them, but get them to basically act as a bank to you, which is what Walmart does to almost every supplier and vendor that works with them. And then you want to decrease and collect your, your payments from your customers. Hopefully they could even be prepaying or monthly paying immediately so that you um, have your cash conversion cycle on your, on your customers to be as fast as possible and that it, that it aligns in a shorter time period than when you pay your vendors. And so you end up using your vendors almost like a line of credit, especially your, you know, your top two, three, four vendors as your line of credit. And, you know, most business owners have been there where they've had to think about where the heck am I going to get the money to make sure next cash flow, uh, next payroll makes, makes it because the last thing you want to do is bounce payroll. Um, and, and, and when you're in a bind, uh, especially when payroll's up, the smart thing to do with that is to think about who your company, especially your key leaders or employees, who can you uh, um, be, you know, who can you keep close to the reality of the cash flow cycle and can you delay their payroll by a day or two and, and your, your own in order to make sure payroll goes through the rest of the company. Um, and so I always recommend employees, uh, you know, business or business owners, especially the first time, understand the cash flow conversion cycle um, that they really, really push the sellers um, to help them understand that. One thing I heard recently at a panel I was on is that sellers are inherently liars and they are trying their best to make sure their business looks good to you. Now, it doesn't mean that they're being dishonest on purpose or that, that they're bad people. It's just that just like a house, you're trying to make it look the best at the moment to, at, at, to as many buyers as possible. And then you as a buyer, your goal and your buying broker, your goal is to minimize risk. So you're asking every question in order to minimize risk and to get to a comfort level where then you can go to close. But after that's done, you 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 got to own that that business and asset you just purchased and own all the risk that comes with it. And that seller, unless they're tied to some earnout or some seller's note or additional payoff, uh, they're done. You know, they're done. And and um, if you use SBA financing, uh, most most sellers get majority of their payouts fairly early on in the process because the SBA requires that most of the time, unless you can argue for a large seller's note. So, um, yeah. So you know the, what, what you said, Nessie, is, is really important about cash flow. Hey, Nessie, I want to ask um, if you could have Ross be a speaker. So Ross is on the space. He just uh, shot me a message. He wanted to have jump in with some comments. Ross, if you're if you're cool talking for a bit. I just invited him up. Let's see if this works. Come on, X, you can do it. Let Ross up on stage. I'm trying. Doesn't always work. Okay. So my Ross, you might have to. Oh, I think he's got it. We got it. Is it working? Yes. Look at that. Disagree with you on one point. You never, ever, as a business owner, miss employee payroll. I don't care if they're a key employee that you clue in about cash flow problems. You never do that as a business owner. That really, that comment right there really kind of irked me, to be honest with you. Do you want to give us some background? Are you a business owner, Ross? Talk us through it. Yeah, he's, he's a business owner. 
just to even suggest that as a solution to cash flow problems is one of the worst ideas ever. Lost just 100% credibility with that. So, Ross, what kind of business do you run? So, I, Let me hear I a bit more about your background. I run a consultancy. I run a Salesforce consultancy. I've also worked for other Salesforce partners before that have skimped on their payments to me. And when I hear people even suggest that remotely, it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Ah, okay, I understand. So I want to know, Michael, from your perspective, why do you think that is a good idea to solve cash flow problems? Russ, yeah, sorry, I'm, I, I think I get your question. I was, um, I missed some of that. It was coming in strange, but um, yeah, the, of course, the reality is there's, there is that is not ideal. Um, I want to wish and hope that. Uh, most of the small businesses that are out there, and I, you know, we work with hundreds of them as an accounting firm. We we handle their cash flow, we handle their um, payments, we handle their customer invoicing. There are a ton of there, you know, hundreds of other strategies before they uh, get to asking an employee or or holding back payroll. Like just so, so just hear me out. Is this is not a primary strategy or a first strategy? It's a it's a reality that I see small businesses hit when they try all other things and yet they still have a payroll due. So they may have a, a large customer payment coming up. Well, if they can get the customer to pay early, great. That's a great strategy. They may have, have a vendor ever, bill due. Go ahead. Have you ever had a business owner, instead of doing that, maybe sell an asset or do something else, get a personal line of credit, borrow money from other people. Like I think just overall, that should never even be an option on the table, is what I'm saying. Well, there's yeah, so Ross, many other levers. Yeah, there's a lot of other there's a lot of other levers, Ross. Um, there's a ton of other levers. There's like again a hundred plus other levers. The reality is, a lot of small business owners don't realize that other level exists until it's too late, and payrolls due tomorrow, or payrolls due the next day. Um, there is just that reality, or they they have a business or they have a uh, personal background where they don't have access to those levers, right? Where they don't have access to people who can give them the line of credit or they face, okay, do I take an MCA? Do they take an MCA for 30% to 50% APR fees weekly? Or do they go to a trusted employee who's been there for 10 years who they know will will be willing to wait a week for a delayed payroll? That is the reality. What I'm saying, I would just even suggest going to that employee and asking them to do that. That's like, that's like, I don't even understand why you even think that's a good option overall. That, that's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. That's how you can get key employees to leave. I think what Michael's trying to say, though, is it wasn't he was saying a good option. He was saying it's an option. Now we're not, he's not advocating for that option. Is, is that this professional is even suggesting that it's even a relevant option. That's, that's my bone I'm picking right now. I'd probably rather be smacked in the head with a shovel than like not pay employee. Yeah. Like literally that's, that's my case because like I lived that reality for three weeks during COVID 
I work for somebody that has my credit, and instead of doing everything else in their power, they didn't pay me for three weeks. And like expecting a key employee to understand that, if I was a key employee at a business, I'd be running for the hills. I would actually just quit, honestly. That's what I'm saying is it's one of the worst ideas I've ever heard in a Twitter space, to be honest with you. And I have to go now, but I just, whenever I hear people like that even screw with employees, I want to stand up for them. And that's my two cents, and I'm going to see myself out. Thank you for coming up on stage, Ross, for your thoughts. That was it was really helpful. And I think everybody here does not want to screw employees over. That's I'm sure that's the case. Nobody is advocating for that. I think that actually brings up a good point, too, around, you know, you know, that type of sentiment is probably how a lot of employees feel. So if you're buying a business, making sure that first payroll goes well, that right there is exactly why you want to make sure that first payroll goes well. So something I always tell my clients when they're about to close on their business is, you know, a week before, make sure you have your, um, you have your accounts set up, uh, start having your payroll processor set up. Um, if you can start getting the employee information entered into that system, like a day or two, or even the day of closing, uh, that's going to be really helpful because it, it could be kind of a mess uh, getting everything onto a new payroll system for a payroll that might have to be run a week from the day you're closing. So, um, and you don't want employees to feel like Ross felt during COVID not getting paid on time. So uh, I think that that does bring up a good point. If you're buying a business, um, make sure you're, you're ready for that first payroll. I completely agree. Um, I would like to just remind everybody who we are here and what we're doing. So today we have been talking about the Entrepreneur's Guide to Business Acquisition. Um, I have been your host, Nessie, on behalf of Cashflow Chronicles. Just a reminder who Cashflow Chronicles are, is we research and interview the minds behind successful businesses and then share these golden nuggets with our audience to fuel their entrepreneurial journey. We've had a brilliant kind of panel today i'm not finished i've still got a couple of questions but just thought i'd give everyone a quick reminder about where we've been because i'm going to throw us into a bit of a different um question here which we haven't got into but it's how are how do you guys manage when you're buying businesses or being involved in business acquisitions about key technology and data security risks especially cybersecurity and how things have moved in that field does anyone want to take that question I'm going to punt on this one, so maybe Kevin, Michael, or Chris. I've, I've never bought a business before. Okay. Kevin, how did you get, did you deal with that? Any kind of data security? <laughs> um, so I, I come from the technology space. My, my previous uh, corporate job was as a deputy chief information officer for a, a large hospital, large health system. So um, I did technology strategy and ops for them. I, uh, <laughs> I have a deep concern about uh, cybersecurity issues. Um, but the reality is when you're, um, there's, not, there's not much to protect uh, on our side. Um, there's not a lot of like, it's not like we're protecting health information or banking information or anything here. Um, now that doesn't mean there's there's no risk or we're not we're just not a high value target for any hacker uh but it's certainly i mean we still get phishing emails we still get all that kind of stuff so 
making sure you partner with somebody uh, locally that can help you, you know, as an MSP, managed service provider to, you know, outsource some of those IT functions, um, I think is, is critical, um, making sure that you've got, you know, modern technology kind of an infrastructure set uh, in your network uh, in order to prevent against that. It's all, you know, it's all very expensive. Um, but, but in this day and age, you need to make the investment and do it. Um, I had a perfect example. Uh, how, I mean, you can't control everything, but a, a perfect example is I had an employee who was, my, my employees have long-term relationships with business partners who are overseas. So she's constantly sending messages back and forth, you know, via WhatsApp or Facebook to India and Turkey. Um, there was uh, a hack on their side and my employee clicked a link that was sent by her friend uh, and business partner. And you know, completely corrupted her phone and uh, just, I mean, it was, it was a very emotional time. I mean, she had pictures of her, her parents who had just passed away. She had, she had lost a whole bunch of stuff. So it was a, it was a pretty, pretty big traumatic event. Um, but that just goes to show that, I mean, there, there wasn't anything connected, you know, to our network, but it very easily could have been um, even especially as if we were more advanced and, you know, we, we, <laughs> We had her, you know, logged into our network, uh, uh, you know, authenticated through our Wi-Fi. She was just on data. So there's, there's, a, there's something to be said for, um, for getting everything sort of interoperable and connected within your small business. But oftentimes the, the, the piecemeal nature of small business is actually a pretty decent defense because if not everything is connected, then, you know, there's, there's not a way for any sort of malicious uh, software, it's harder. I'm not going to say there's not any way. It's it's harder for that malicious software to jump from device to device. Um, so that was a sort of a blessing in disguise. Um, you know, overall, we would we would have preferred. Uh, you know, it would have been better if she was on our network because we probably could have uh, identified the risk and maybe filtered out messages. But what are you going to do? Um, so it's it's a very prevalent thing, uh, even if you're not you know, in, in sort of a classic, um, we, we would call it PHI in the hospital. So protected health information, you know, financial information, banking information, um, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, even in the textile space, you know, we still, we still have information that, that people wouldn't necessarily want out in the public and that we wouldn't want to deal with, um, uh, into with our customers and have to basically write letters, um, of breach. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you could quote cyber insurance. Um, a lot of times there's some kind of a rider that goes in your, in your property and casualty insurance. It's usually pretty vague and not, not enough. Um, but cybersecurity insurance, I remember when we were quoting it before I left the hospital, like it was, it, I mean, there was, there was stories about them attacking. Uh, I mean, that was, that was right around the time they did the pipeline um, hack. There was several municipalities and health systems that had been hacked in, in the area so insurance went through the roof and it's probably, I haven't, I haven't quite priced it for my business, but it's probably cost prohibitive. Not a lot of people are writing those policies right now um, because they, you know, surprise, the insurance companies don't want to pay out those claims. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult problem right now. That's quite an interesting perspective. Michael, you had something to add. Yeah, you want to make sure you do get a strong uh, cyber insurance policy in the accounting space. There are some niche insurance providers for the accounting space on cyber, as well as 
some generic ones as well. We uh, we do we do have quite a bit of PII that we store, um, and we want to make sure we control the um, the number of employees that have access to that PII. Can you, not only of our our own PII of our of our of our employees, but obviously our customers that we handle payroll services for, um, or any kind of HR services for. Uh, you also want to have ownership as much ownership as possible and control of the devices that your employees, um, whether they bring a device uh, themselves or not. And so we use a you know mobile device management solution called Hexnode that helps us monitor the devices, um, any type of devices that employees are bringing to the company or that we provide. It allows us to make sure those uh, devices are secured and then we can deploy security software and other software to those devices. Um, and we can make sure if there's other software that's being installed on the devices and whether they conflict with um, with any of the accounting software that is on the devices. Uh, if you're going to go into a field like accounting or, 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 or legal, the reality is most of these um, old firms, these traditional firms still have a old server sitting in a in a physical office with uh, Microsoft Outlook 2003 or 2007 um, Exchange, an old version of Exchange, uh, probably still using uh, the office environment, but desktop-based, networked with physical desktop computers. So these are these are the businesses that you know uh, older uh, boomers are running. They're on old environments, so and they're paying, they're overpaying some old IT person. Uh, because they're scared and worried that the server will down. So, you know, it's best that you then think about hiring someone who's probably has modern, modern view of cloud-based or, or more, you know, 2023 uh, technology that can come and analyze the systems and help you do a migration to the cloud um, or to, you know, not being office-based. The risk you have of keeping the old systems as they are is that they go down and uh, especially during, you know, for accounting during tax season, one day of going down can be worth thousands of dollars of, of loss uh, efficiency. So uh, we make sure of that. And then you want a, a password credentialing system like one password where uh, most companies uh, in I don't care how big they are. I've, I've run into large firms, large companies, our clients. They've got credentialing systems where they've got usernames and passwords on one master Excel sheet or Word document. And that is not the most secure way of keeping credentialing. So using a credentialing system like a OnePass, uh, we we've had a lot. Of, we've seen a lot of people leave LastPass because of breaches that have happened over the past many years. So OnePass or something like that has been super helpful. And then making your employees sign in their employment agreements and their offer letters, they sign a, a a cyber or technology agreement with you that they're going to follow your procedures and that they will be held liable if they don't. That's actually really important too, so that they, they acknowledge that, you know, there's a reason you turn on multi-factor authentication. You, there's a reason you want everyone to have different passwords on different websites and not the same password and username on every website. And then you can enforce those policies and make sure employees are held liable if uh, they breach that as well. And then annually you want, you know, you want a cyber company doing random spot checks on phishing um, and also working with employees that are probably the least digitally savvy, you want um, you want random tests going out throughout your company so that you can educate employees who fall for, you know, the random phishing email. Uh, uh, probably within within a week, 
or um, within a week or two of any new employee starting at the company, they 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 will get a random phishing text or email, um, not from us but from somebody out there. The 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 hackers and the people wanting to hack your systems are very sophisticated, and you know they can they can connect the fact that someone makes an announcement on LinkedIn, go find that in, in individual employees text you know phone number and email address and then message them and pretend to be the CEO of the new company they're working at now and for new employees that's you know for some of them they fall for that kind of thing and so you want to make sure that you um, have all the security set up as soon as possible yeah I think that's really critical oh Kevin oh is this gonna I, I that was that was an excellent answer <laughs> I mean that that was yes that was that was textbook right there uh, do everything that Michael said. <laughs> I agree. He's uh sometimes I get he nailed it. Sometimes I get good <laughs> <laughs> Oh, guys, this has been going for 1 hour 30 minutes. It's been an absolutely wonderful space, but I'm going to wrap us up now, I think. Um uh, before I do, um would anyone in the panel have anything they'd like to share last tidbit to any of the audience? No? Okay. So I'm going to wrap us up then with, guys, this has been excellent. Um, I have been your host, Nessie. And a reminder, Cashflow Chronicles basically research and interview you wonderful panelists right now to who run successful businesses um, to get the golden nuggets and because we want to share those to fuel our audience's entrepreneurial journeys. It's been a really interesting space. I have loved it. It's been fantastic. Thank you all for coming up. Everyone in the audience, please give our panelists a follow. Give them a follow. If you liked what you see, retweet out the space. It's been um, really good. And just want to say thank you very much for everybody. Thanks for putting this one together again. Good, good being here. There's three rules that are absolutely paramount.